0: Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Overdue Rentals, the podcast where we talk about films that just nobody seems to talk about anymore. My name is Matthew Shuckman.
1: And I'm Cinema Lens
0: Mike Reyes. And today, we're joined by the renaissance man himself, Timothy Blake Nelson, who's here to talk about his new film, Old Henry, which is going to be in theaters this Friday, October 1st. Yes. And, and his overdue rental choice strapping everybody guess pardon was irreversible
1: is it no or no way because i've no way i
0: i keep saying no it, but it's it's no way i, I just say it yeah. weird i just always have i, I don't I, know why i always have
1: it just makes me question myself and i i, I try to be a stickler for those sorts of things as someone whose last name has been pronounced incorrectly <laughs> quite a few times in history i like to make sure but yeah. It's, it's one of the, uh, yeah, it's one of
0: those things where I try to put, an, I put, try to put my own axe on it before I say it, and I realize I'm screwing it up and it always gets screwed up when I say it, so I apologize.
1: Well, no matter bar. how you pronounce his last name, uh, this is definitely, I think this is definitely going to be an episode that people, I'd, I'd like to think people would talk about it, maybe in a good way, maybe in a bad way, but it's it's definitely a conversation starter because Irreversible is a film that, as you will hear us uh, discuss later, because we're not going to get too much into it now.
0: But spo- but there will be spoilers during the talk if you haven't seen it yet, just so you there know. There have
1: to be spoilers because of the nature of this film. There is a big trigger warning on this for anyone who is not uh, who, anyone who is not into films about sexual assault. This is the biggest trigger warning we could possibly give to you.
0: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't even say who We just have problems maybe seeing those things or dealing with those things in in, in in media, I would say. But before we get into it, for those who don't, we won't, there, there really are not many spoilers, if any, for when, for Old Henry, I think, because we're going to try and keep, when we talk to Tim, I think we're going to try and keep that it, 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 you know, held in because that's the kind of thing you want to be surprised about. But Old Henry is a film yeah. about a farmhand who obviously passed before he's now a farmhand in the early 1900s, trying to raise his son right. And when... Uh, a wounded bank robber, we'll say, comes into their uh, into their lives. Things are gonna things are gonna kind of reveal themselves. But that's all we'll say about that. I think. And I, I you think know I want
1: to do. <laughs> yeah,
0: but for irreversible. For those who have never seen it, yeah, oof. you know what? I, it's not. I. You've probably it's, heard about it if, if you've never seen it, and I don't even know if there's a, a very simple way of kind of because you can put it in the simple way of talking about the film as, you know, just people seeing how things impact their lives as it goes backwards through telling the story.
1: A couple's, it is a reverse chronology story of a couple dealing with sexual assault, revenge, and loss.
0: But yeah, but the thing is, at the end of the day, it, it's it's it, it's meant to be more than that. But th- those are the points of the film, especially where yeah. it starts, it's starting backwards, that will play into it. But again, spoilers, will be had if you haven't seen it it's gonna be a heavy one guys but it's good it's good it's gonna be a good one
1: yeah no no it is a film you know what let's just get into it because i feel like we're gonna get way we're we're gonna go way too far into this and i i think tim's here ready for us now so ladies and gentlemen without further ado overdue rentals welcomes tim blake nelson at the counter tim come on down
0: Tim, thank you so much for joining us on Over Rentals. It is, again, an honor to have you here. It's my
2: pleasure, I love the content.
0: Let's, let's start off talking about Old Henry because I, like, I go into everything trying not to know about it. I try not to read synopsis if I can, I avoid trailers. And Old Henry, I was lucky enough to go into without not knowing a thing. And I had such, I don't wanna say fun times, it's not like it's a fun experience, like you're, you're going through a comedy, but I really enjoyed myself. And especially for something that, you completed this less than six, seven months ago. Is it kind of weird to like automatically already have it less than a year out and ready for people to see?
2: I suppose in particular with this movie, it's quite striking because I was involved very early on. I got the script a year out. I worked on the script with its writer director for months. I worked on the role for months and months, researching and working with a lot of the different um, hardware that with which I interact in the movie. Because as an actor, you have to seem like you've been around the the props all your life, uh, and they're 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 like appendages for you, and that took a lot of work. It's a large role, and at this point, I now learn an entire role before I show up on set. It's just a new way I have working. And then, because I was a producer on the movie, along with Patsy Conseroli, the writer-director, and the, the actual producer, Shannon Houchins, uh, and the actual producer, Mike Haggerty, I was more of a creative producer. I was involved in the entire editorial and sound process with Patsy, uh, the writer-director. It's his movie. I'm not claiming any authorship. It's absolutely his movie. But truly, I was at the sound mix uh, over the summer in June. And then suddenly in early September, we are premiering it at the Venice Film Festival. That's a very fast turnaround.
1: It's amazing what you can do in the modern age of, of filmmaking with such a quick turnaround because you, wouldn't, you would never know by watching the finished product, like uh, it, it, like Matthew said, it is it is such an enjoyable film, especially if you're a fan of old school Westerns, which I really feel is that that is a genre, maybe it's an overdue genre, so to speak. It's I mean, it used to be this mythic storytelling device, and now we're lucky if we get a handful in a year.
2: Well, yes. Um, I'll say two things in response to that. One is that while it was a very quick turnaround, a a tremendous amount of man hours were crunched into that time uh, on scant resources. And I know we always hear about the scant resources, particularly of indie films, and perhaps it grows tiresome, because to get to be able to make a film at all is is such a blessing. So I'm not complaining. I just think it's impressive what Pazzi Ponsaroli, and his team pulled off and... Most of what you see was accomplished uh, in camera, so it's not a di- digital effects laden movie. Uh, we couldn't afford that. Uh, the visual effects budget, I think, for this movie was under twenty thousand dollars, which is uh, usually uh, on a Western. Your your visual effects when you put in bullet hits and 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 blood, erasing anachronisms from the frame. It, it, you know, they can run into the, to, to the hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of dollars. This movie had about a twenty thousand dollar budget, and one guy did all the visual effects. One person sitting in his garage in Oklahoma, and that's no joke. Uh, so it, it's it's really impressive what they pulled off, and we're all incredibly proud of the movie. And then. It premiered at the Venice Film Festival in the same section as *The Last Duel* and *Dune*, uh, and, and *Halloween Kills*. Yeah. So we were this little little movie swimming in that that uh, uh, great ocean, which was which was which was fantastic.
0: And you can tell. I mean, even if even if nobody had that information or knew, you can tell the kind of love that went into it just on how it looks alone. Uh, it, it, it just it's just breathtaking for something that is kind of not 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 gray in any way whatsoever but it's not trying to be colorful but you know i want to go back though because you you were talking about the research you did in preparation for the role and you know we're not going to give anything away but there are actual historical individuals who, who are being presented here in one way or the other and i'm wondering does the research go into just again, like you were talking about, how, how, to, how to work with those tools, how to work the land, or is there actually a part of you that goes back, even though it's not gonna
2: play a part necessarily in what you're presenting, somebody's real life? Every choice um, that we made, and, and that's Poxy as a filmmaker, and that's um, in my work as an actor with Poxy's approval, because he's the director, uh, and the makeup guy with whom I've done about a dozen movies at this point, this wonderful talent uh, named David Atherton. Um, Everything we did in terms of the, whatever this guy does and his entire look was absolutely deliberate uh, and thought out and thought through. But if you wanna make those sorts of choices work, particularly as an actor, you have to go, it, it has to, be pursued with um, a kind of uh, tireless discipline so that it all seems rote, and you actually are the guy. And so that the audience, hopefully, anyway, doesn't catch you acting or winking or 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 playing at something that it, that really isn't you. And at every level of this production, Whether it was the costume designer, uh, Brianna Quick, or the DP, John Matashak, or Patsy Ponsaroli, the writer-director, and the other performers, Stephen Dorff and Scott Hayes, all the, everything was pursued so it would seem like you were intimately there. And that's not unique to us. I mean, that's the responsibility of, of actors and filmmakers and designers, no matter what the movie is. It's just that um, with the leadership of our writer-director, wonderful production team, um, we really went after it with scant resources on this one. Mm -hmm. And you were talking earlier about the Western. I I don't think the Western will ever perish. Yes, in the 50s and in the late 40s, it had its heyday or golden era, and then even into the 60s, but each generation redefines the Western because it's a quintessentially American art form. First of all, cinema was popularized by Americans. Uh, now every country in the world has, has their own native cinema and some of them uh, make better movies than we do. So it's, I'm, I'm not claiming cinema as, as a uniquely American phenomenon but it was originally an American phenomenon uh, as an art form. The Western combines westward expansion, quintessentially American, with the gun, because we're a young country and that expansion was accomplished with the gun. Uh, We're not old like Europe, where it would be the mace or the broadsword. It was the gun in westward expansion. With the maverick Western hero, who's the rugged individualist, and that's also quintessentially American as opposed to the collectivism of Europe. You know, I, I, I think there are arguments for collectivism and arguments for individualism. Uh, I'm not trying to make a political statement other than to say that, that the, the, the individualist or the libertarian, if you, if, if, if you will, is a really American phenomenon. Individual rights is an American, uh, is, are, are, those are cherished American ideals and those all come to bear in the Western. And then each generation gets to redefine it. And what I like about our story is that really, it's about a guy, my character, Old Henry, who's trying to wall his compound in Oklahoma territory off from all the violence uh, and corruption of modern of the modern world, and protect his son, and he learns that he can't do that, mm-hmm. and it's like this. I- I'm sorry, but <laughs> it's a kind of metaphor for COVID, uh, <laughs> and, and I don't think that that's a stretch. And and when you see the movie, you'll you know he he basically fails and violence ensues. And I know for a fact that one of the issues that Potsy, the writer director, wanted to examine was the notion of walls and trying to seal one off from the outside world. Now, of course, he wrote his original draft before COVID and perhaps he was inspired by the wall at the southern border. And, And the notion that you really can't nor should you try to keep the world out. Yeah. The best way to live your own life and to nurture your son, because this movie is about a father-son relationship, is to allow the world in. Well,
1: yeah, that just ties into the quintessentially Western notion of, you know, protecting what's yours and standing your ground. And like you had mentioned, over the decades, we've seen that notion... Sort of peeled away in certain aspects, and then every now and then you have something like *Unforgiven* or even HBO's *Deadwood*. That sort of brings it back onto the radar, and for a little while, it gets that boom, that sort of
2: resurgence. Well, yes, you know the post-war western, and we'll leave we'll leave the singing cowboy, and you know, a, a, obviously a genre I love, um, but but we'll leave that behind. We'll, we'll leave that, shut that aside and just talk from post-war on. I mean, the first Western was was reputedly made in in like 1895. And, and I think it was a short in England, funnily enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's talk about just post-war, you had good and evil. It was a very Manichean morality. Good versus evil, white hat, black hat. The, the, the white hat wins and protects the town or protects us all and uh, either stays there to marry the girl and 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 leaves his uh, rough and rowdy ways behind or he rides off into the sunset but then in the 60s with, with the counterculture movement you had flawed heroes really you know those Clint Eastwood characters like Blondie in Good, the Bad, and the Ugly he's He's a flawed guy. He has his own code and he doesn't kill Tuco in the end, but he's a pretty, he, he probably thinks he's killed Tuco when he leaves him in the desert in that movie. In Few Dollars More and Fistful of Dollars, he's a, he, he can be a pretty downright nasty character. And then you have the Lee Van Cleef characters or Once Upon a Time in the West, there's really, every character is flawed. And I think in Unforgiven, you're also dealing with a flawed hero. That guy is trouble. And I don't think you have that without the revisionist Western. No. And so while it is a return to the traditional Western, it also relies on the interceding iterations of the genre. And I think that that's where old Henry tries to fit in. And I think we succeed because the character I play is quite flawed.
0: Well, it, it's it's interesting too because going back to also what you were saying about the idea of you know not walling off the rest of the world and letting it in. To me, at least when I watch it, I see Old Henry very much as an idea of, and this is much what we were already talking about. You know, him trying to keep his son innocent, and that you you can't do that. There has to be a break in that innocence at some point, and he w- doesn't want him to be flawed. He wants him to be perfect, but you you have to actually have those flaws to live real life in essence. You can't keep yeah. walling it off forever.
2: Yes. And as a parent, I very much identify with that because I have all these impulses to protect my kids.
0: Which makes, yeah, which makes perfect <laughs> sense. I got, I, you know, to, to, to not, you know, veer off because I love everything we're talking about, but I want, I'm interested also, was everything on location? Was that even the indoors, like an actual cabin that was built or was that on set at one point?
2: It's. Entirely on location, and I, I should also now mention uh, our production designer, Max Visco and our art director, uh, Ruby. The interior and exterior of the house are impeccable, and it's about, about half of it was there already, and about half of it they built with repurposed period materials, again, on a very scant budget. But no, there were no sets, none whatsoever. And it was all filmed within about 10 square miles mm. in rural Tennessee, uh, outside of Nashville, about an hour outside of Nashville. Potsy Pozzaroli knew the ranch. Yeah. And they just did a a big location deal with the ranch owner and that house was on it and they went in and, and, uh, augmented it to be exactly what Potsy wanted.
1: Now with such a tight budget and, you know, quick turnaround, I don't think it's a spoiler to say it's a Western, you get into a gunfight and a rather impressive one at that, I must say, uh, how long did you have to pull that off and what sort of prep did you have to do beforehand to make sure it went off without a hitch?
2: Well, there are several gunfights in the movie. The final one, which in a sense is my favorite one, even though it's the least flashy, we filmed in about three hours as the sun was going down on the last day of photography. So the director was backed in to a very disciplined shooting strategy. And he completely pulled it off. Stephen Dorf and I did our jobs well. Uh, I think Stephen, in particular, is to be commended for all the bullet hits and the blood in the mouth. But really, the credit goes to to Potsy and his DP. They just knew exactly the pieces Potsy needed. There's no, there was no master shot. So for anybody who knows about filmmaking, if you have a master shot to establish not only geography, but just the just what's going on with everybody in frame. You can always reside back in that master shot editorially if you're missing something. Mm-hmm. Well, Potsy shot that scene with no master and he had exactly how he wanted to edit it in his head and he accomplished it literally in three hours. I'm not exaggerating. And I, I was blown away. Uh, I, the, the, the only other filmmakers with whom I've worked who are able to think that way as effectively and efficiently are Steven Spielberg and the Cullens. I, I, I certainly wasn't expecting it out of a second time filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And Steven and I in that gunfight were just completely in his hands taking orders. Wow,
1: yeah, I have to yeah. say, you're making this movie even more impressive. Just why, why are they not having you? I mean, no offense to the good PR people that are running, but why don't they have you on the team? Like you could have written the, like that just would have been the, the log line. It's like gunfight shot in three hours, watch it.
2: <laughs> well, I suppose I am on the oh. team.
1: Uh,
0: Very true. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting because you, you did talk about earlier how, you know, look, as for somebody as you, And again, any actor who's maybe, maybe that's their only thing they do. They don't write, they don't produce, they don't do anything else. They're just an actor. You know, obviously a good relationship with a filmmaker. They're going to have a back and forth. They're going to talk about things. But for somebody like you who does have such a rich history as a filmmaker, as a writer, when you come into any film, is it discussed ahead of time saying like, how much input of mind do you need? Do you feel like maybe you're stepping on somebody's toes at some point? Where is that line drawn?
2: Well, it's different with each project. But what I always make clear is that, to me, the director is the boss. And I made that clear to Patsy. I said, he said, I want you to come on as a producer. It was his idea, not mine. He said, I want you to come come on as a producer and be my partner in this. And I said, I'll absolutely do that. The only rule is that you're the boss. So I'll give you my opinion. But I am never, I don't want to be in the position of ever having you feel like I have any kind of power over you because I'm not interested in that. It's not good for the movie. An actor needs to be an actor when he's on set. Mm. And So when I'm playing a scene with Scott Hayes, I don't want Scott Hayes who plays the part of Curry in the movie feeling like he's anything other than my scene partner and my equal. Because if, if, if there's a different sort of power dynamic, dynamic, then we're not going to be able to play a scene together. It just, it's not going to work. Mm. And likewise, I sign on to a movie because I believe in the director's vision. And so if a director ultimately disagrees with an opinion I have, then just by virtue of the fact that I'm the actor and he's the director and I've signed on to his project, he's got to win that argument. Otherwise, it's going to be a less interesting film. Hmm. The best films, by and large, and there are certainly exceptions, but the best films, by and large, are made by really great directors who have final cut. And nobody can fuck with them. Yeah. And they're allowed to be really bold. And so you see that with old Henry. It is an unapologetic, old-fashioned, meat-and-potatoes Western that is not interested in any pieties that's not careful in any way it's just a straight ahead old-fashioned western that pays homage to the genre and is hopefully saying something a little new and adding to the genre and that's because Poxy had control of the movie and the rest of us might have given our opinions but it's his film and i think that's the essential paradigm for really great movies and that's a viewpoint that you
1: kind of see thrown to the side in some high profile cases that have been in, that we won't mention but you know you you see read these stories about certain movies that they're kind of taken from the director on a studio level
2: well yeah so many tentpole movies today are made by committee or made by creative teams at studios effectively know what the movie's going to be before the director is even hired. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was talking with a director with whom I worked recently, I won't name him, who said that he showed up in pre-production and was presented with pre-vis renditions of scenes that he was going to shoot. And he said, are you kidding me? That's not happening. I'll, I'll look at these, but if, if there's any previs here, it's going to be with my kind of consultation. And he wasn't being a brat about it. He was basically saying, that's not the way this is going to work. Yeah. But as a result, studios do end up sometimes, and sometimes they don't, thankfully. Yeah. But for these big tentpole movies, they'll hire directors because the director can be instructed what to do rather than because the director is going to bring in his own approach. Whereas when a guy like James Gunn is hired, you have a new take on something. And the, the, the studio is rewarded by that. And you want to say, look, see, this can work this way. Well, maybe that's the, the best
0: part to kind of move into the overdue rental we have today. Because while, of course, it's not going to be a studio film when Gaspar Noé makes it, he's a guy who's going to make the film he wants to make no matter what. And today we're talking about Irreversible which, of course, has a very well-known history behind it, but maybe because of that history, that's why people haven't seen it.
2: I I love this movie, unabashedly and unapologetically. I think it is a work of art, and movies don't have to be works of art, Mm. but this one is. And I don't think movies have to be works of art to be great films, but this one is a great film, and I also believe it to be a work of art that pushes the boundaries of what the medium of cinema can do. It's one of the most impactful films I've ever seen. It is nearly flawless, aesthetically, rhythmically, and from a storytelling point of view. It's innovative in every department, from camera to wardrobe to production design, and especially the acting and given the striking visual nature of the film, to panegyrize the acting is almost ridiculous because everything else about the movie is so good. But then the acting is tremendous in very long takes mm-hmm. where you almost feel like you're present with the characters who even as beautiful as uh, Vincent Cassel and Monica Bellucci are physically never seem inappropriately vain. They just seem like the characters they are existing in the reality of the story. Now, all that said, I can understand why people in particular women and also gays, might find this movie repugnant. I completely accept that, and I I choose this movie for your show at some risk because in 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 the current environment, I don't want to be canceled for liking something that others find offensive. Mm. So I'll say I get why others find the movie offensive, and I get why critics like David Edelstein is really smart critic uh, found the movie homophobic. I think that everything that happens in the movie in the way it does is essential for what the movie is. And that's what makes the movie ultimately as powerful as it is. The lengths to which Gaspar Noy goes in, as an example, a rape scene that lasts about nine minutes. Uh, in a single shot with a camera that spends a lot of the time just locked off while it's happening.
0: Really, what, the only time it's locked off?
2: Yeah. Um, I think that I think that all that's essential, but I can also understand the, the countervailing point of view. And yes, Gaspar Noy famously is uninterested in any sort of editorial oversight or input mm-hmm. in Enter the Void. He got into a a, 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 a a real dispute with his producers uh, about the length of the film and some of the shots in the film and some of the sequences in the film, and he simply didn't back down. Yeah. And that's Gaspar Noy. That's what you that's what you're going to get with a Gaspar Noy film. And I I believe Irreversible, and I'm a big, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Gaspar Noy. I, I would love to be in one of his movies, uh, although he's only directed one in English. and, And I don't always love his movies, but I think, I think that Irreversible is kind of, it, it's his Grand Budapest Hotel, which I think is Wes Anderson's most accomplished film in that his style is perfect for the story. Mm. And so I always love watching a Wes Anderson movie. I'm not an idiot. Every one of them is, is pretty fantastic. Grand Budapest Hotel is, you know, there's, there's no seam between form and content. Yeah. It's all one. And I believe that that's what Gaspar Noy accomplishes in Irreversible.
1: Oh absolutely like right down to just the score itself inducing the anxiety that only heightens what you're watching on on the screen. I mean, I'll admit, this is my first time watching the movie after knowing its history and watching the rape scene my fist was clenched around my pen as I was taking I was like trying to take notes and then I'm just watching this and I'm glued to this but in a repugnant sort of way and sort of like n- not against Gaspar but just against what's happening on screen and i think he's yes. just so expert at provoking these human emotions but very base emotions of what both in what's going on screen and how you're reacting because you want to just step in there and you want to clock this guy
2: yes uh, are you talking about Gaspar Noé or no, Ten- no, no i want no, i know i want to clock uh, Latenia, not not
1: Gaspar Noé no Gaspar Noé <laughs> i i would sit down and talk with him but no you you want to hit like you wanna hit and defend characters while you're watching this. And it's, that's even more of a feat considering it's reverse chronological order because Gaspar Noé was sort of inspired by Memento. And it, it, this movie plays out two different ways depending on how you watch it because the way that the film is presented, it's a tragedy. But the way that it, if it was conventionally, chronologically shown, that'd be more of a revenge thriller.
2: Yes, and Roger Ebert, may he rest in peace, made a great point about the movie, which is that that it really does for its morality, which is a, a loaded word when you talk about Gaspar Noy in this movie, because a character says there is no good morality or bad morality. There's just morality. But he said that the morality of the film actually depends on its reverse order. Absolutely because by starting with the revenge and working backwards to the origins of the love story between Alex and Marcus, the characters played by Monica Bellucci and Vincent Cassell, you you learn truly the cost of the violence. You learn what was lost. And so you're instructed by the filmmaker not to, resol- not, not to focus on the revenge, but to focus on the fragility that ends up purposing the, the revenge. And that's a very provocative point to make by learning the why instead of being satisfied by this culmination of violence, which ultimately I think the film comes down against in particular because the wrong man is killed. But then you do see this rape scene, which goes on and on and on and on. And the final chronological image of the perpetrator of that rape is him smiling, watching the wrong man getting his face back in. You have ultimately a moral point to it all. And and also a a philosophical point about how fragile we are and how fragile love is and how love can contort into violence. That, in the context of the sentiment that's the last image in the movie, um, is, are the words, time destroys all things. And you have a really, the beginnings, I mean, everything else, not, not to mention everything else, of, of a very provocative piece of cinema. I
0: it mean, there's also like a point of, of realizing too, because. I mean, obviously everything's going to change as you start to witness things as they happen, as it goes back and back and back. But as you realize that even in the moment when she's being taken away in the ambulance, that Marcus, Marcus isn't as vengeful, revengeful, you know, however you want to put it, until he's approached by the, by, you know, the the quote unquote street urchin.
2: Yeah, yeah. who,
0: who, who kind of put him into it. And even as it's all going on, it's, it's interesting to also see the idea is like, you, cause it gets lost. Cause you almost forget that. Pierre is saying like, visit her in the hospital. Let's go see her in the hospital. Please calm down, calm down. And it's the the, the deviation of two men who had a relationship with her at one point or another, or even still to the day of just like where it could go. And it just it, it never went either way. I mean, it went one way and the other way It never met to where it probably should have been. Even though it's a horrible well, situation. Again
2: uh the relationship between Pierre and Marcus is absolutely fascinating you have in Marcus effectively a hedonist in the modern sense not the classical sense so he's this is a uh, he's he's a he's a lover of life to excess the character of Alex the Monica Bellucci character is insanely beautiful We'll learn eventually that she's a devoted partner who wants to have his child. We also learn that she's very free with him in bed uh, in this incredible love scene that we'll see later in the movie, but of course it's early on chronological in the movie that's told backwards. But she's not even enough for this character of Alex who goes to a party with her and is doing drugs uh, and drinking and hitting on other women. Pierre is a philosopher, literally. He's a philosophy professor. He comes off uh, as a timid, repressed character. And in this beautiful scene in uh, a subway, the two are juxtaposed because Pierre used to date Alex. And he effectively, you know, he. it's it's implied that he wasn't impulsive enough. He wasn't a sexual being. He wasn't impulsive. He was too repressed. He couldn't handle somebody like Alex, the Monica Bellucci character. She wanted somebody who was more hedonistic. You have um, the the Apollonian and the Dionysian. You have a man who lives to excess and a man who depends on self-control. But the guy who commits the murder. And it's an absolute brutal murder. And it must be brutal, ultimately, for the film to make sense. So I'm talking about he bashes somebody's head in with a fire extinguisher until way past when the man is is dead. Mm -hmm. The innermost demons. It's not the hedonist who does that, the impulsive character. It's the Apollonian character the guy who reputedly is supposed to be burdened by too much self-control. Do you,
0: do you think, because I think, again, there are a lot of people who never even attempted to see the film because they heard about the rape scene and they're just going to stay away from it. They didn't even, they didn't even hear about the face smashing. They, 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 they just know that one scene, they stay away from it. Now, of course, I'm not going to say I want people to go watch edited films, but do you think that if there were a version that were cut away that was more palatable to certain people, people would actually sit and watch it or is it not even be worth it? Because unless you're gonna be able to sit through it, it it's not gonna to get to you anyway, so why, why do it?
2: Well, so I've watched the movie many times, obviously. And I'll admit that maybe a third of, in a third of my viewings, of the movie, so that's two out of the six times I've seen it roughly, I thought, okay, it is too long. The rape scene goes on too long. And frankly, I don't I don't buy it physically mm-hmm. because LaTenya, so all right, LaTenya is is at least bisexual, but probably gay, because he goes to the rectum, the SM gay club in the movie. So let's assume that he's gay and it's an anal rape. How could it go on that long, just physically? But, and, and, and so sometimes I think it's too much, but then I think, well, perhaps, okay, perhaps it's partly that he is gay. And so maybe he's not as excited as he would be were it a man. And he's probably on a lot of drugs. I don't know, maybe there's something realistic to it. And when I get past that, and when I get past those two out of the six times where I've thought this is too much, I think that it goes, ultimately, I come down on the side that that it teaches you the cost and violence of the rape to go on that long. It teaches you not to romanticize this, not to fetishize it the way that so many movies do Mm. in the name of being anti-violence, anti-rape, they end up fetishizing it because they don't show you how violent, how costly, how awful it is. And so ultimately I'm gonna say the scene needs to be watched and it needs to be that long because only then does it become as utterly reprehensible and repugnant as the act actually would have been in real life. Would you guys agree?
1: No, absolutely, there, there have to be stakes. For this, sort of, for this sort of event, like if you're gonna show a rape on screen, there has to be a really damn good reason, either in story or in stakes. And just what we see in this film, to a, to, to a cinematic extent, does justify that. So it's not like you're seeing it in vain. It's not salacious. It's supposed to be an inciting event.
2: And Matthew, you don't agree.
0: Oh, no, no, I, 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 I don't. I feel that you have to see it as a whole if you want to experience what is trying to be said i at the same breath like i was talking to my friend because i i had a whole run of films yesterday actually i i had a, i rewatched it after coming home from seeing uh, titan which is you know an experience in its own self so i'm like all right now i'm gonna put myself through this i'll probably skip it i mean i know what happens I, I i'm just trying to refresh myself so i'll probably skip it so i think there's a place i, I think is i want people to witness things and I want people to understand them. Because again, the whole point of this film is that even before that happens, it's it's messing with you. And the people who walked out during festivals or walked out when they see it are not going to get the full picture because it's it's doing that on purpose. But in the same breath, get, just like you said earlier, I understand where certain people can't deal with it. But you just, you want people to kind of get that message. And if they don't see it at least once, they're not going to get that message.
2: Well, if you're familiar with Gaspar Noy and most people who watch will watch it irreversible are mm-hmm. the first moment the, the the first scene which as a Jew I like to call it sort of a haftora for the movie um, <laughs> it it's and the Coen's did the same thing with a serious man uh, it's a completely unrelated scene that it and it's the only scene in the movie that doesn't at all advance the plot. But the, but, but the film needs, it, it, I think the film needs that scene. Mm. And, and, and what the scene is, uh, for those who haven't seen the movie yet, and this is not a spoiler, is you have a naked man speaking with a clothed man. I don't know if this was intentional or not, but it's a quote of the Manet painting, uh, Luncheon in the Grass, where you have two naked women with two naked men, but in the foreground, you have a, a, the, a clothed man and a naked woman, so one of each, um, on the same plane. And the, the staging in the opening scene of Ir- irreversible just absolutely quotes that. I don't it, maybe he wasn't doing it on purpose, but I think he is. Quoting a painting that was painted by one of the first modernists. The character who's naked, is a character upon whom the entire first movie that Gaspar Noy made, uh, I Stand Alone, is based. And at the end of that movie, and I did not go with this, even though I'm a complete Gaspar Noy fan, there's a a kind of tacit, I think, justification of of a man sleeping with his daughter. And, And in the opening sequence of this movie, he's talking about that and he's naked with a clothed man, and apparently, you know, you're to infer they've had some sort of a sexual experience together, God knows what it was, with the one clothed and the other not, I don't know. And then your movie begins. But I think that's saying to the audience, you've probably seen my first movie, now get fucking ready. <laughs> yeah. And that is probably the best
1: statement any director could make for their second film. Uh, Tim? <laughs> I just want to thank you so much for sitting down with us today, and if the recent developments of the MCU are any development, I hope we get to see you again as the leader slash Samuel Stearns, because the Hulk seems to be coming back, and it would be a shame not to see you again.
2: Well, there have been rumblings, we'll see. Ah,
1: Well, thank you again, and we may. you know what, we may just have to have you back on for a serious man, now that you've mentioned it, because that's on the list.
0: Oh yeah, well, there's, there's so many Coen Brothers films on the list.
2: I would be happy to do that. I, I, I was tempted to choose um, a Coen film, but it would have, uh, I don't know. Have you guys seen Macbeth yet?
0: I'm seeing it on Friday. I'm at the it, film, festival. film
2: festival. Yeah. Are you going to be at the premiere or the press screening? The press screening. Okay. I'm, i I'm, I'm seeing. I've seen it, but I'm, I'm going to see it again Friday night.
0: Yeah, I'm. Uh, I, I mean, I'm. I'm a mess. I grew up. My heroes are Terry Gilliam and the Coen Brothers. So, like, this is like my life to Our me. So, life. I'm uh, I'm
2: ready. Uh, I, I, you will not be disappointed. <laughs> Thanks again. It was wonderful Stay having soon, you. Sir. Great meeting you guys. Right. But...
1: Tim Blake Nelson, ladies and gentlemen, the man. I, I I I like to. I think we we can say safely and as a compliment. The man's a talker. I really could stay here for another hour with him and just listen because there's just yeah. the way that Tim talks about Irreversible. As you have heard now, this is a film that deals with the subject of rape and it doesn't, it deals with it in a very explicit sort of, as explicit as you can get in Art House without being porn, basically. Like it deals with it in an explicit way that Gaspar Noe. Gaspar in way is is just he is definitely a, a a provocateur. Yeah. Because you know, we we mentioned in Enter the Void, uh, there's also love, which honestly that's that's graphic, but it's not it's not it's it's more it's porn, guys. I'm sorry.
0: Yeah, it's mainstream it's porn. porn.
1: It's more pornographic, but the thing is it's not at least it's people consenting to activity and it's more about the nature of love itself. Versus I, I, Oh, go ahead, sorry, go ahead oh no, I got to hear this. What, did you see it in 3D?
0: No, I was going to say that, you know, the day we talked to Tim that night was the New York Film Festival press screening for his for Gaspar's new film, Vortex, which stars Derry Argento. Uh, and and, and I, my, my colleagues have seen it and I've heard, I mean, yes, I'm sure it'll be tough for certain people to see, but it, of course it is a lot more tame, I guess, for what you expect from his films. Uh, it's still experimental. But uh, much more of much more of a loving thing than anything else.
1: Well, didn't you also have climax come out earlier in the year or like later? Climax, is,
0: climax is a lot older now than you think it is. That's a few years old now.
1: Oh, that's <laughs> the nature of time right now. Is just so. I don't know, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, yeah, no. But but going back, you know, here's the thing: we, we didn't. I didn't get to bring it up, and I kind was thinking about it the whole time because we did. There is a there is a slight connection that could be made between Old Henry and Irreversible. And that's not necessarily why it was chosen as the film to talk to today. It was chosen because that's a film that Tim loves and wants other people to see, you know, that they may not see, but it's an interesting thing because while the characters themselves, especially when it's the the official beginning of their story, the real beginning of their story as of the end of the movie, you know, obviously they have it's not like they've never sinned before or not innocent in a way but I think the film and a a lot like old Henry is trying to do a little bit. It's about this idea of, you know, gatekeeping innocence. And we spoke about that, but I always thought that irreversible is that idea of, this is not what it's meant to be, but I always see it this way, you know, that there's, there's no way to regain your innocence. Like I always thought like, is there a way that you can, you can go back to, once you've crossed that threshold, can you go back to it? It's like, I th- like in, in in reality, it's like if we stop making jokes at a certain age, like I think you should be a certain age and when somebody says the number 69, your response is not, nice. You know, it's like you can do it without laughing. And that's regaining my, your innocence in a way to me, but irreversible is in a way it's like once something hits, there's this kind of no turning back.
1: No, absolutely. It's just there's there's certain acts in... In the human condition, like murder, or just there's certain things where it there's no coming back. And that's probably because of just again, like the the title says, it's an irreversible consequence. You can easily grow out of schools of thought or ways that you react to things, but certain lives and certain acts are just indelible. And again, that's that's definitely a thing with old Henry because of The nature of the character and you can redeem yourself potentially but Mm -hmm. it's not going to there's no it doesn't claw back and I would you know I I just want to let the audience know Tim actually uh, I believe Tim suggested Irreversible as his first choice because we gave him the list and there were some really good choices but the moment he mentioned Irreversible it was my first time watching it yeah, After yeah. knowing of the film's legacy, and it's like you know what, I I need to do this. We need to do this.
0: Yeah, it's it's funny too because I, I we mentioned it when we spoke to him. You know, like it was because a weird day because I I came from seeing the Tan from New York Film Festival, which it's, it's that's another discussion. But it's I can't like, wait
1: not, to see that.
0: Yeah, but it's not like a simple sit down and watch and you know no. not be a little disturbed kind of film. And then it, and then I had to come home and rewatch Irreversible and i hadn't eaten all day and oh, so, I ordered, so i ordered chinese food and i'm sitting there eating chinese food while he's smashing his face well i mean the whole entire opening because it's more than there's a lot there's just it's it takes place in in a very uh uh cd uh, club, club you know <laughs> and Is there's
2: a lot of shit going on
1: yeah so like so sitting there eating chinese food watching this just like what why did i make this choice oh, <laughs> oh and of course, in true Noé fashion, you just see every frame of that head getting caved in. Like I, <laughs> I think it's funny. and I think it's rather fitting that Gaspar Noé puts a uh, a two thousand one poster in here because that's a Kubrick film, well, and well, to I- a certain extent, Kubrick is it, 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 Kubrick is basically a person that sees the world as a very indifferent sort of engine. And just, I believe there's a quote out there, unless it's been misattributed due to internet usage, where he basically says something like, you know what, the world is kind of indifferent. And once you make peace with that, you can make art, you can live. And I definitely feel that indifference in Noé's work, but it's very much, it's it's a starker sort of indifference in Irreversible versus Enter the Void, where it kind of feels a little more spiritual and biological.
0: I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to backpedal because the 2001 poster, maybe I'm misreading it, but that is the one thing about the film that actually pisses me off more than anything else. <laughs> to me, that's him being, I'm better. Because the 2001 poster is very specifically one that has a quote on top saying, the ultimate trip. And I think it's, it's, it's no way saying, that's the ultimate trip, no. I just took you on the ultimate trip. I think it's him being egotistical. And that's the way I've always looked at it. And that's the way I'm always going to look at it. He could tell me the opposite. And I think that, and I think he'd be lying to my face if he told me the opposite.
1: See, if he did it at the end of Enter the Void, I would kind of see that. But this is, while this is a trip, I made, maybe he's, maybe he was calling out a signpost for the future. Maybe he was kind of like staking it out for himself. I mean, he does use half of Daft Punk to create the, the um, amazingly dreadful score and ambiance for this movie. I love how unsettled this makes me feel. I <laughs> I am not a ba- I, I like to think I'm a positive person. I get along with people. I like to believe in the good in human nature. But I do like getting disturbed by movies because if it's done in the right way, it's an experience. Well, I, and I don't it's know something if, that really gets you to talk.
0: I don't know if you read this believe it if you've read it or not but you know the supposed theory well not theory I mean what's what's said to be is is that they put a very specific low tone in the film overall the music that is is actually meant to make you feel uncomfortable hence why people were fainting in the movie theater when they first saw it and stuff like that because it was just too much for them to take because of that low tone
1: oh I read that too and I totally believe it Let's let's not forget, this is a man who, in order to lift his own camera rigs, and has admitted this on record, coked himself up. The man is dedicated to making you feel uncomfortable, but not to the point where he's just being like a shock jock of directors, where it's like, I'm just going to do this because, you know, it's gross, it's nasty, and I'm just, you know, there's a difference between... What trauma does, which trauma does that, but it does it in sort of a, a churlish sort of way, sort of the uh, impish. Like, you know, he, he
0: definitely this... does stuff to push buttons, but he's, but it's not, that's not, not what he's doing and he's not why he's doing it, but he's going to do it.
1: Yeah. Like, it's just, he, there's a point. It's not just, I'm going to make a Serbian film and totally yeah. just, you know, oh, the, like even though they say, oh, there's a point. It's like, I've heard from so many people who've seen that movie. It's like, ah, oh, no, there's not a point.
0: Well, I, I mean, I have never actually seen a Serbian film. Me I know either. people have, and I know people have done extensive reviews on it. And I've talked to my friend who actually I've talked to Alec, who we've had on the show. Ah, yes. And he, and he made the point very clear to me. Uh, and maybe we won't talk about it here. Maybe we'll talk about it after, because that's if you want to talk about the reversal being messed up, we, I don't know if we want oh. to go into a Serbian film at this point.
1: Yeah, but, I've, heard, I've heard how messed up that is. Uh, I mean, have you? we'll talk after. Yeah. Anyway. This isn't the Serbian film episode, folks. We don't yeah. know if that'll ever happen.
0: I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think, I, don't think <laughs> I have a problem watching it, to be honest with you, but at this point, it's yeah. like, why? why it's, it's the same thing. With, for those who don't know, I do. I don't drink. I've had alcohol before in my life. I've tasted almost every single thing there is out there. I just, it's just not me. And so at now 41 years into my, into my lifespan, people will be like, oh, well, you know, this, they have this now, it tastes great, you can do it. It's like, why would I start? What's the point? And I think the Serbian film's the same way. It's like, why, why now? Why, why would I even, like I, I, I
1: The, the yep. rose is sort of off the, the bloom sort of off the rose. It does. I think that's the thing. The, the tarnish is off the star, so to speak. It's like now it's just like ah, well, it exists. It's not the, you know, it's the, that's one of those movies that was sort of like, lightning hot buzz of like negative and oh, what the fuck. Yeah. And to us, and, and in a sort of circular point, that's kind of what Irreversible had when it first came out. The only difference is Irreversible's, you know, actually persevered over the years because it's something with actual worth versus uh, i'm gonna do these unspeakable things because politics and it's like yeah really really or is it just because you want to do these unspeakable things
0: yeah i mean it's it's it. again if you got if you made it this far you still haven't seen it if you think you can take it to go watch it let us know what you thought you know old henry again is out in theaters october 1st this friday make sure you go see it i I had, not again, no preconceived notions, no idea really about the film other than it was definitely going to be a Western and Tim Blake Nelson was in it. I really enjoyed the film, but it's definitely one of those films that after I started researching it, once I was finished seeing it, I was like, I like this even more. Because that is amazing oh, yeah. what they were able to pull off. And that, show, that blew my mind. And I am just now, I mean, even more in love with, it. And like, again, not to try and talk down ever about anybody. Uh, because I love Steven Dorf, I've always liked Steven Dorf, but he's never Steven been.
1: Dor- I want to get Steven Dorf on this show. Yeah,
0: he's never been like the the out of the box great actor in my mind but that. He's so good in this movie, so good, oh, so perfect.
1: Fantastic. I see. The thing is, I think, I think that Steven Dorf kind of has one of those personalities where the press likes to play up sort of oh he's like a bad boy yeah. and like, very much stirring the pot, but the man still got real i mean whether he whether he does it or not the man's got great talent behind him and he he really is fantastic in this yeah and yeah the more that we the more that tim told us about how this came together i was more impressed it's like this is old school western filmmaking
0: yeah it's 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 all there that's that's why i asked cuz i mean i could tell again i always think i could tell though but I could tell that that was not a, st- a soundstage when they were inside the house. But I had to ask, I had to know. Because while even I, I knew I wanted to hear it, because that makes me even more just pleased yeah. with the whole thing. But now's the time for you to go cross Irreversible off your overdue rentals list, go buy your tickets, see Old Henry this weekend. And Mike, if anybody has any inf- needs inf- information from us, ugh, I can talk today. Yeah, can yeah, you yeah, find yeah, us.
2: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> well, They can find us on Twitter at Rentals Overdue. They can find us on Facebook and TikTok at Overdue Rentals. On Instagram at Overdue Rentals Show. You can also find our show and the back issues of this fine and wonderful enterprise we've put together on anywhere you find major podcasts. We're on Audible, folks. I found us on Audible. Yeah. You could get... The You could get the audio drama of the unproduced William Gibson Alien 3 script. This is not a promo. I just really need to listen to that. And you could also listen to us. And if you want to send us recommendations, reviews, love letters, poison pen letters, letters that can only be read in reverse order, send them to us at overduerentals at gmail.com.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. Blah-bye.
1: Blah-bye.